Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Life short, death certain, hell's real, plan ahead. We are stewards of all God's entrusted to us. He has entrusted his word to us. We herald and preach and teach his holy word. We have the words of everlasting life. We have a relationship with the true and living God through his son who suffered and died for our sins. In today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, Prepared for Eternity. We're in Luke chapter 16, and we'll begin today in verse 16. Jesus is discussing the law, the prophets, and the kingdom, and will share with us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So let's listen in. He does say in verses 16 and 17, the law and the prophets were unto John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. In other words, he's dealing with two issues here. And then he illustrates it in, in a way that kind of throws some of us off. And we'll talk about why. He, he says, listen, the law and the prophets, they, they were preached till John. They were all meant to point to Jesus. He says, hey, they, you know, search the scriptures in them. You think you have eternal life but they testify of me. But since that time, the kingdom's preached and everyone's pressing into it. It's a picture of aggressively pursuing the kingdom, the things that are eternal, the things that are spiritual and, and not just passively thinking, well, God will do what he's gonna do or has what he has. And then he says, listen, not one little jot or tittle of the law can pass away. These are just like, they're, they're marks for breathing marks in the, the Hebrew text. And, and so he says, it's all going to be fulfilled. And then he uses an illustration that would seem out of place if we didn't realize that it's just an illustration. And if you go to the scriptures and you find a verse like verse 18 and you try to understand what the Bible teaches about divorce and adultery and remarriage and those kinds of things based only on this verse, well, you're going to end up confused. Why? It's the entirety of scripture. But what he's doing is he, he's saying, listen, you guys esteem the things that, that I, I'm not really, you know, into. And you need to know the law and the prophets, they've been fulfilled in in, in Jesus, because John points us to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The, the kingdom's being preached, people pressing in. And, and then he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, again, why choose this particular illustration? Well, remember the audience. He's targeting here because he's been talking to his disciples, but I, now the, 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 the religious leaders are upset with the things he's saying. And so he's targeting them again. His attention is back on them. Why does he choose this illustration? Well, because at the table, those who were representative of the entirety of uh, religious leaders of that day, they would have come from two schools of thought or backgrounds when it came to this particular issue. When it came to marriage and divorce, the conservative view was there's no divorce except for 
adultery. The actual scripture says if a man marries a woman and he finds uncleanness in her, that he could write her a certificate of divorce. So the conservative view was, well, that uncleanness could only mean that she was immoral and therefore she's broken the marriage vow, the marriage bond. You're free to go. You write the certificate of divorce and well, you're not only free to leave her, but to remarry. That's the conservative view. What's the liberal view? If you discover she's unclean means anything you want it to mean. And you have to know that was never God's intention. Like, say she burned the bacon. Well, not really the best example since even cooking bacon would have made her unclean. But uh, yeah, you, you get it, the whole kosher deal. But, but, but here's the thing. Though it would have made her unclean, it would not have been or constituted grounds for divorce. And so it's a very serious subject. And what, what he's doing is, is he's saying, you guys, you, you pick and you choose and you look at a scripture that, that says God's going to bless and make you wealthy. You're wealthy. You think you must be blessed. But I say, I'm looking on the heart. God's looking on the heart. Your hearts are far from me. You're not loving God. You're not loving people. You're loving stuff. And when it comes to the most important relationship, the one that he likens to our relationship with him, he, he, he says, you're just taking it so lightly. And, and, and so here's the important part of all this. And, and for a couple of very important reasons. From the very beginning, it was clear. God says a man's to leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. It's hard to get an accurate picture of that from the pulpit. But let's just even say the two becoming one flesh is like, you know, you becoming entwined like this. There's no way if you're really one to pull the two apart who've become one without doing great damage to both. And I don't have to convince you that that's what happens in divorce. I got to tell you, I am one of the, the fortunate and blessed few, at least in my family. Divorce is the norm in our family. Grandma, I don't know how many husbands she had, but, but I mean, we lost count. And, and my, my mom was divorced and Pam's parents were divorced and then divorced and then divorced and, and our siblings. And it's just kind of how things are in our family. If you're thinking, wow, what a bummer. Our family's perfect. Well, that's awesome. But I don't think that's most of you. I think most of us have either been divorced or, or have been touched by divorce close to us. And, and here's why I wanted to spend just a moment on this. Though it's not the subject, it's an illustration. I don't want anyone to, to, to leave feeling beat up or beat down or, no, listen, divorce is sin because it was never plan A. It was never God's purpose, that, that his purpose was one man, one woman for life. But all sin can be forgiven if that sin is confessed. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Here's why that's so important because so many of you have already suffered through divorce and now you're trying to make another marriage work or maybe you have hope that God's gonna give you someone. It is absolutely essential that you own what you failed in. Not that you confess their sin. I'm sure if you're divorced, you have lots you can say about the person you're divorced from. But he doesn't say if you confess their sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. No, you have to confess your sin. And if there is such a thing as an innocent party in a divorce and you're it, well, then I feel even more for you. But I want to tell you, God's heart breaks for all who've been divorced in the same way his heart breaks for all who've wandered and sinned in any other way. And there is restoration and there is forgiveness. And it's not the subject or we'd spend even more time on it. But, but, but just know God wants you to put the past in the past, to live for now and really for the future, to deal 
righteously. And, and, and so he's using this as an illustration of, of their lack of love for God, of their lack of love for one another, their lack of example to the community they were ministering to because they were guilty of the very thing that God said, hey, this should never be happening. Well, he concludes with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, many, well, my Bible headings, if you have a study Bible, it'll say the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But many, and I am one, don't believe that, that this is a parable at all. Here's why. If it is a parable, it's the only one where he uses a proper name. Search the scriptures and see if this isn't so. In every parable, it's a rich man or it's a farmer, you know, went to sow a seed or it's this one or it's that one. But here he says, there's a certain rich man clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. The fact that he names Lazarus, at least for those of us who are Bible students, should cause us to pause and say, well, is he doing something more than just illustrating a point? Because that's what a parable does. Connecting the dots between the earthly and the heavenly, the temporal and the, the, the eternal. Is he doing something more? I think he is. I think he's opening a door that, that he's showing us what was happening in that day in the afterlife. You see, there's going to be a contrast between the, how these two men lived, between what happened at their death, and then what happened in the afterlife. And he wants us to know not only is there an afterlife, but but that the decision we make in this life will determine what our afterlife is really like. Well, verse 19, we started, certain rich man clothed in purple. We call that Calvary camo around here. If you were to come here dressed in purple and stand against any wall, you look like a floating head. But um, here's a guy, he's decked out. He's got fine linen. He fares sumptuously. That just means he has everything and more than he ever needs to eat. In contrast, there's a certain beggar. His name's Lazarus. He's full of sores. He's laid at the gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So in life, it looks like the rich man's got it all going on and Lazarus not doing too well. But we're going to see Lazarus has a relationship with the Lord. That in spite of his difficult circumstances, his poverty, his illness, whatever else he's dealing with and suffering through, this guy has faith in the Lord. We'll see that clearly in the story as we continue. Well, it says, so it was, verse 22, the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. You got to see this carried by the angels, not his body, because when the body dies, they just put it in the ground. There's no mention of a burial, though I'm sure he had one. But but what God's saying is the real him, the one that lived in what the scriptures called this tent, this body. Well, he's now, you know, being comforted by the angels and carried to Abraham's bosom. Hebrews 11 tells us that's where all those who died in faith would be comforted with the Lord, awaiting the, the death and burial and resurrection of the one who would suffer and die and bleed for our sins from the time of Jesus' death, by the way, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's the clear teaching of the New Testament. But prior to that, apparently... We have Abraham's bosom. That's where the departed believer goes. And then we have the contrast. It said the rich man also died and was buried. And I think he makes mention of his burial because in those days, if, if you were rich, burial was a big deal. Maybe that's true today, but, but not even in the way it was then. 
You see, if you were really wealthy at your burial, you could hire. And they did. They made they planned ahead and they hired all these professional mourners. So you could actually get a gig just going down and, oh, I miss them so much. I love them so much. How much? Oh, it's break. You know, and then it's, you know, okay, back on for some more mourning. Let me just say, if you got to hire people to mourn for you after you're dead, you probably didn't do very good relationally when you were alive. And, and that seems to be this guy's story. And then not only was he dead and buried, but in torments in Hades, and he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Apparently, those who teach that, that we just live and die and cease to exist are wrong. Those who teach annihilation or soul sleep or reincarnation, they're wrong. Because according to Jesus, and listen, even if this was a parable, Jesus never used something that wasn't true to teach something that was. He always spoke the truth. And so, in any case, the situation as he describes it, in life, the rich man's grooving, Lazarus is suffering. In death, Lazarus comforted, the rich man buried. And now in eternity, because that's what happens after this life, the rich man in torments in Hades. Hades is the New Testament world, word for the Sheol of the Old Testament, sometimes in many places translated hell. Now, death and hell itself, when you get to Revelation 20, are cast into a place called Gehenna. That's outer darkness. That's a place where, you know, the fire burns forever and, and no light ever reaches it. I don't know exactly how that's going to work. That's God's problem. But, you know, to me, you got fire, you got light, but somehow darkness and, and fire. And, and what's going on? Take note of this word. It is such an important word. He was being tormented in Hades. He'll say it again and again. It doesn't say tortured. And, and I bring this to your attention because I hear people saying crazy stuff like, can't believe God would torture people in hell. You know, I can't even believe a loving God would create hell. Well, there has to be somewhere for people who don't want to go to heaven. And the bottom line is nobody goes to hell that, that doesn't choose it. You got to walk over the cross. You got to turn away from God's offer of forgiveness and redemption. It was that way in the Old Testament. It's that way in the New Testament. People died in faith. Looking forward to the cross, we die in faith looking back at the cross. Others disregarded that they were made by God. They worshiped idols and stuff and, and they died without faith in the one who could and would have saved them. So they're forever separated from them. But it never says they're tortured. <coughs> the word tormented is actually used of the, the fallen angels. They don't even have bodies. How would they be tortured? No, it's, it's mental, it's emotional, it's spiritual. I believe the greatest torment of, of hell eternally will be the knowledge that didn't have to end up there. You, you, you could have made a better decision. You could have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved. So he's being tormented in Hades. And, and, and apparently not only is he conscious, but he can see, he can recognize and at this point, remember, before Jesus' death, before his burial, before his resurrection, these two apparently could see each other. A place of torment, tor torment and, and punishment, a, a place of, of blessing and encouragement. Well, he cried and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son... 
Remember, in your lifetime, you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Now, listen, he's not saying Lazarus is in heaven because or, or comforted in Abraham's bosom because he was poor. It's because he believed. See that so clearly. And neither is the rich man tormented now because he was rich. It's because he didn't care for God. He didn't care for people. He just cared for his stuff. And now he's lost it all. Besides this, he says, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Now that last, you know, Verse, those two statements, they challenge me because I can understand why people in, in Hades would like to get over to Abraham's bosom. But why would anyone in Abraham's bosom be willing to go to Hades? I'd suggest to you, it's because they're compassionate that if he could have, Lazarus would have dipped his finger in the water and gone and, and given some to the rich man. And the reality is, is, Nobody can pass from one to the other. We seal our fate in this life. We determine our destination and our eternity in this life. So what do we see? Nothing we have or nothing we lack will change our appointment with death. They lived, they died, and they were, well, now in the eternal state, either blessed for eternity or suffering for eternity. Death is not the end of our existence. It's a move from the, the temporal to the eternal. Hades, <coughs> a real place, a place of torment, not torture. And the comfort that we're promised, the joy, the peace, the, the, all those things, they are eternal as well. Our decision in this life determines where we spend eternity. Well, resigned to his fate, and he is, he begins to think about his brothers. Talking to Tim in between services, he goes, wow, people become evangelists in hell. You know, it's like that's what happens to him. All of a sudden he's interested in sharing the Lord. Only he can't do it, you see. And so here, here's what he does. He realizes his brothers, they're on the same path that led him to, to this place of eternal torment. So he says, I beg you therefore, Father, verse 27, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. We know he's a believer because he's comforted in Abraham's bosom. We know he's a believer in that the rich man knows he's a believer because he says, you send him, they'll believe it. Now, it could just be, hey, send back anybody, but he doesn't say send me. He says, send him. He knows he's not going back. He doesn't know if Lazarus can go back, but we're going to see that that's not going to happen here. And, but in any case, it's a reminder to us. He says, I got five brothers. They're on the same road. I don't want them to end up here. All of a sudden, he's thinking about others. All of a sudden, he's thinking about eternity. And I would suggest there's no one in heaven or in hell that if they could come and say, hey, it's true, that wouldn't. They'd all testify to the fact that it's true. But listen, we have all we need. And that's what Abraham goes on to say. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Jesus was clear on this. The law and the prophets all pointed to him, all spoke of him. And so they had all they needed to know they were sinners, that there was a plan of salvation, and that they could have life eternal if they would just trust in God and his provision. So he says they have Moses and the prophets. 
And then he says, no, Father Abraham. Interesting. Here he is in hell and he's still arguing. No, Father Abraham. But if anyone goes to him from the dead, they will repent. Well, I hear people saying this today. If only God would work a miracle. I know my brother would believe then. If only God would do something miraculous, then, then I know my mom, my dad, my, my, my son, my daughter. He's saying, if, if someone rose from the dead, hey, it doesn't get any more radical than that. Then they'll believe. And he says, Abraham says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. What that means is if you don't believe God's word, that all the miracles in the world won't convince you. And by the way, it's interesting to note, another Lazarus, not the same guy, personal friend of Jesus, raised from the dead by Jesus, brother of Mary and Martha, who often hosted and blessed our Lord and his disciples. Lazarus dies, Jesus allows it. He lets him lie in the grave for four days to show that he has power over death, but not just those recently dead or mostly dead like Princess Bride, but, but someone truly dead and buried. Four days dead. He comes, he speaks to the dead man, he rises. And then, well, Lazarus becomes a tourist attraction in the kind of small town of, of Bethany. I mean, people are, they got nothing to do. They're like, hey, let's go talk to that guy who used to be dead and is alive now. And, and, and what is the determination? What, how does this impact the religious leaders that Jesus is reaching out to? Let me read it to you. John 12, 9 says, a great many of the Jews knew he was there. They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. You know, it's enough that you are alive in Christ. That's enough. They have the word of God and they have the testimony that you're alive. You are a, a testimony of God's life transforming power. But here's what happens. Verse 10 of John 12 says, but the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. I would suggest... They believed because they believed the word and now they'd seen evidence. But you can never put the, the sign before the word. You can never put the evidence before the word. It's the word first. It convicts you, it convinces you, and that God confirms that. And many of these believe. Well, again, many were coming to faith in Christ because the word prophesied the coming of Christ. And, and where does all this leave us? And we need to get to it. What have we learned? What can we take home? What can we apply as we prepare our hearts for communion? I'll give you four quick things. Make a mental note or jot them if you can. Life short, death certain, hell's real, plan ahead. I think they're essentials. Life short, death certain, hell's real, plan ahead. We are stewards of all God's entrusted to us. He has entrusted his word to us. We herald and preach and teach his holy word. We have the words of everlasting life. We have a relationship with the true and living God through his son who suffered and died for our sins, was buried and rose again. As stewards, we will give account. We need to be found faithful. We need to use all our resources to bless people. We need to be prepared for eternity and exhort others to do the same. We need to share God's word because it works. We need to preach the simple gospel that he died for our sins. Christ Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again. There's life and forgiveness in him. Finally, we need to live each day as if this could be our last. 
In verse 16 of today's study, Jesus said that the kingdom has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Now, I truly love this and I wanted to offer it to you as yet another reason to worship God and to have something to be thankful for this Thanksgiving week. Frankly, we can look around at the world that we live in and find little to comfort us and be thankful for, but I would have you think of it this way. Romans 11, 2-5 tells us, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. You see, despite what we see going on around us and how dark this world can seem, the gospel has been preached. It is being preached. God is still working in and through his people. The future God has promised us will never be changed, and we are part of that remnant spoken of. These are things that we can truly take a moment and be thankful for. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.